standing as we uh, read our text for this morning. If you would, turning in your Bible or looking on the screen with us, Luke chapter 10, verse 38 through 42, you'll notice there these words. And Jesus and the disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem. Uh, they came to a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he taught. But Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her to come and help me. But the Lord said to her, my dear Martha, you're worried and upset over all these details. There is only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it and it will not be taken away from her. And so today I want to talk to you from the subject, take a seat, take a seat. And I'm going to take one too. Isn't it a wonderful joy to know that we can just have a seat, have a seat, have a seat. Because here was Martha and Mary. These are two sisters. And they are doing something that is very natural. Martha was doing the work of a host. Both were necessary. And I want you to notice Jesus never condemned Martha, but he commended Mary. Uh, both are necessary. You, you can't just do one without the other. Uh, Jesus is in a home of, of Mary and Martha. He came to their home. This begins to say something to us that when, when the master comes to your home, we want to be hospitable. There was going to be a meal prepared. I mean, I don't know about anybody, if you've ever gone to the country and had church and where they had dinner after church. And I don't know whether you've been in one of those country churches with the wooden floors and the fellowship hall was downstairs and you could smell fried chicken coming up through the floor. It's hard to concentrate. But Jesus was in the atmosphere of their home sitting down. Great teachers and rabbis sat on pillows or they sat in a chair and their disciples, their students came and sat on the ground or they sat on mats and they learned from the great teacher. So it was their way of saying, I want to see what this looks like and they wanted to learn the discipline that had been developed in the life of the rabbi so the students came and sat at their feet they asked questions and they had dialogue one with another about the things that the teacher was teaching uh, they didn't just say things in a vacuum they allowed them to ask questions so that they could see exactly what they meant by these particular things. I never will forget a few years ago, uh, within the past five years, I was in Nigeria teaching. 
And I'm teaching 4,500 pastors from over various locations in, in Nigeria. And I allowed them at the end of my teaching in each session to ask questions. Now I am learning how they are perceiving what I am saying. I don't even know uh, that they understand what I mean in the context in which I mean it. I can only tell how much they understand by the quality of their questions. And then when they have questions, we had dialogue. There was discussion. And that allows a flow of meaning when you actually have dialogue. It's, it's from uh, the, the original word dialogos, which literally means flow of meaning. You don't get a flow of meaning until you have a discussion. You know how years ago a parent would say something to a child, the girl would be on the telephone, and this is when we had landlines, and everybody didn't have their own cell phone. They said, Charlene, get off that phone. And, and then what the mother did, what she said to Charlene, you know, who, her little boyfriend on the other end could hear her and it embarrassed Charlene. When Charlene did get off the phone, she came by her mother's room and said, I hate you. And then she storms off and she goes and slams her door. Now, if they had a discussion about that right then, now the mother is in her room crying, upset, pierced, hurt by her daughter's comments. My daughter says she hates me. And she's just thinking, you know, my daughter says she hates me. After, after everything I've done, I've tried to help this child. I've tried my best to raise her. And she says she she doesn't She doesn't really mean she hates her. She means, mom, what you did embarrassed me. You embarrassed me. You hurt me in front of my friend. What she really means is, mom, you hurt me. She doesn't mean I hate you. She's like, you're doing something that makes me feel uncomfortable. But you don't get that flow of meaning until you have the discussion, the dialogue, the dialogos. Does that mean anything to you? So when you talk to people, they're just looking at what, ha what, what happened. But until there is a discussion about what happened and why it happened, then sweetheart, I'm trying to protect you. You've got to get up and go to school early in the morning. I don't want you to be shell-shocked sitting in your class the next day. You may not like me right now for what I'm doing, but you will appreciate me and thank me years down the road. It may not be right now. And there's going to be a time when your mama's going to grow old and feeble and you're going to say, oh my God, I wish I had some more time with mama. And so if they had that discussion, the mama wouldn't be hurt and then the daughter wouldn't be sitting there thinking that my mother is my enemy and she's against my having fun. She keeps spoiling all of my fun. I hate you. And it comes out as I hate you when it really means I dislike what you're doing right in this moment because it is embarrassing me or spoiling my fun. And if you had a discussion, now you get the flow of meaning. We, instead of sitting down and getting an understanding, we fly off the handle and jump to conclusions. So here's the message, have a seat. Have a seat so you can have a conversation. I'm amazed at how women bond.
sitting at a table over coffee or tea talking with each other. Men don't generally bond face to face like that. Men bond shoulder to shoulder. So you'll find two men in the military fighting war together and they become the closest buddies because men bond shoulder to shoulder facing a struggle. Whereas women bond face to face over conversation, a dialogue. But the great teachers of old, they would sit down and teach something and then they'd have a discussion. In fact, in the early church tradition, one of the things is that the rabbi, the preacher, the teacher, they actually stood and read the text of scripture and then they sat down. Their sitting down was a way of saying that I have finished reading from the Holy Writ of what the ancient prophets have said. And now these are my thoughts and commentary concerning that as we have a discussion concerning this, asking questions and learning. And so it's a healthy thing to be able to discuss things. Discussion reinforces information. Discussion reinforces information. If you get something out of the message today, discuss it over dinner. Discuss it. Discuss it in your homes. Discuss what you've learned. Discuss what you got out of it. Discuss what it means to you. Discuss what you think Jesus was saying when he said certain things in his word that we'll talk about as we go along. It's, it's, it's in the discussion that we, uh, we have a reinforcement of meaning and an understanding of it and, it. and it comes in a flow to us in a way that helps us in a wonderful, wonderful way. So I, I'm, I'm grateful for the privilege of just being able sometimes to just sit down and have a discussion so that we can hear and be heard. The art of communication is not merely in our ability to articulate and speak, but it is in our ability to sit and listen, sit and listen, sit and listen. And it, it, it calms us down to say, don't be on a, on, on a moment of defense here. Just, just take it in first, think about it, and then respond. So just the, the physical posture of having a seat, having a seat, just have a seat. It, it helps us in a wonderful way. You know, Jesus told us in, in Luke uh, chapter 4, he, he went, Luke chapter 4 gives us the account of Jesus coming into the temple, getting the Bible, the scriptures. He actually took and read from the book of Isaiah. He found that place in Isaiah that says the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to open the eyes of the blind, to speak deliverance, liberty to the captives and, and to set it free all of those who are oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. He began to talk about that where we have the record of it in Luke chapter 4 verse 18 and 19. So Jesus is, is giving them that. And then after he finished reading from the book of Isaiah, he gave the book back to the attendant. And then the Bible says he sat down. 
When he sat down, he then looked at the people based on what he had read from the prophet of old, Isaiah. And then he said, this day, today, is this scripture fulfilled in your hearing? So now he was saying to them in so many words that what I just read that Isaiah talked about hundreds of years ago, this is that. This is that. It put flesh on what the prophet had been prophesying. It put flesh on it. And so Jesus was letting him know, I'm the fulfillment of this. He sat down and told the people in the temple that. After he stood and read, he then sat down. And now they began to have a, dis a, a discussion. And now, because they were wondering, is he saying what I think he's saying? Does this dude have delusion of grandeur? See, they couldn't really fully understand what Jesus was trying to see. But he let them know, today is this scripture fulfilled in your hearing. But it's, this was a part of the rabbinical teaching style. That they would sit and they would discuss it and ask what it meant to them. And ask what did you think that the original author was actually saying to the people. What do you think that he was saying at that time? And what do you think that God was saying for all time? So when you approach the word of God, you should have a discussion. Because let me remind you of this. That the Bible is the only book in the world where every time you open it to read it, the author is present. And you can have a conversation with him. You can have a, actually have a conversation with him and talk to him. And he's speaking to us, giving us rhema word right now, timely word for our lives right at this current moment. But it was a, it was a common expression that students or disciples or particular great teachers or rabbis, that it was called that you would sit at the feet of them. Not because they were standing and speaking, but because they were sitting and speaking. And so because they were sitting, you also sat at their feet. Paul referred to himself in that same way. He talked about it in Acts chapter 22 and verse 3. He mentioned how he had sat at the feet of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was, was tremendously trained in scripture. And Paul sat at the feet of Gamaliel. You need to always be at somebody's feet. Because you don't learn how to serve and you won't live long enough. You won't even know how to hold your marriage together till you sit at your grandmama's feet. Oh, you need to go back to some old voices and you need to say, you know what? I need, how, did, how did you make it when daddy was acting crazy? When grandpa was acting crazy? How did you make it? Uh, daddy, how do you, how, how did, how you live with mama with all that mouth she has? <laughs> Grandpa, how, you, how did you deal with grandma's temper? You, sit at their feet. Sit at their feet. Since I was a young child, I've always been fascinated by older people and the stories that they have to share. I'm just, let me say this to you. Wisdom of the ages is better than knowledge of the moment. Let's say this again. Wisdom of the ages is better than knowledge of the moment. And we think that because we get a little knowledge in the moment because we've been to school. Yeah, you've been to school, but you don't even know how to apply this thing. 
You know, you see, it's, it's amazing that the student who is sat in seminary, they understand the text, but they don't understand the context. So you need somebody who can help you to understand the context because they have lived. And this is, it doesn't work as easily as, as, as you may think, because sometimes you can't just look at the devil and say, Satan, I rebuke you. How do you apply that? And you'll find an old soldier who's been a warrior a long time. And they understand that it, you, in addition to re rebuking the devil, you got to start pleading the blood, pleading the blood of Jesus. Sometimes you got to get on your face before God. Sometimes you got to, I mean, you got to go to war. Sometimes you got to start anointing stuff. You got to start binding and loosing. You got to start pulling down strongholds. You got to start guarding the relationships of people. Uh, I mean, and see, a person who just reads something, they'll run off with it, but they understand the text for the older person who has lived a little while. They understand the context and you're not going to get that context until you learn to sit at somebody's feet who has, has already walked where you've got to go. And that's the power of sitting at the feet of a great teacher because life is too short for you to figure it all out yourself. These guys didn't figure it out. They got a piece of it and died. And we get the luxury of seeing the piece that they contributed. And now it creates this, this composite wheel. We're seeing that this piece that this one had, this was a mosaic. It was, a, am I making sense to you? Life, you can't understand God in one generation. You can't even see the faithfulness of God in fully in one generation. It, you, you've got to see that what God promised to Abraham, it wasn't fulfilled until his grandson was born. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, he gave the promise to Abraham, but Jacob was the manifestation of it. And if you judged it looking at Abraham's life alone, you would feel that Abraham died as a failure. Listen, listen, the thing that you're praying about right now, little do you know that what God may do in your life may be manifested in the, in the lives of your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren down the road. Don't you throw the power of prayer. You know, there's some people, you know, when something happens in our world and they say, you know what, I'm just tired of praying. I'm just, I'm tired of people just saying, yeah, we need to pray about this. Listen, don't undermine the power of prayer. May I just say this to you? When you understand the power of prayer, it takes the power of prayer to dismantle demonic strategies. We're not just praying out of an emotional response to make us feel better. We are pulling down strongholds. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They are mighty through God, mighty through God, mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. So when the devil is messing with your spouse and messing with your children, don't you dare underestimate the power of prayer that will undermine and dismantle the tactics and and the plans of the enemy there is still power in prayer God honors prayer prayer helps us to be able to tap into the power of heaven and the mitochondria of heaven begins to flow down into God's people God things happen when men and women of God pray things happen when children pray a child can pray and shift the atmosphere of their household there is power in prayer and I'm just telling you I, I'm, I'm just reminding Reminding you this very day don't ever under, underestimate that you th think that you've got to do everything on your feet when you get on your knees if you haven't fought the battle on your knees first first get off of your feet get off of your feet and get in a seat 
It's time to sit down until we can think and say, God, show me what to do. Don't start running and you don't know which direction and which to move. You need to get clarity. You need to get understanding. You need to get your bearing. You need to get charged and energized. And you need to pray until a fervor of conviction has so welled in your heart so that when demonic people start attacking you and criticizing you and, and questioning your motives, that you have a fire of God on the inside of you where you said, God, I'm going to deal with this. And I know that you called me to do this because I've already settled that issue in prayer. Because the real battle is in the spirit realm first before you ever go out on the battlefield. You better have a conviction in your heart that Lord is with me and that and victory, victory is going to be yours. Victory. You, I, I got to know when I get up and pray. I need to pray until I feel a load of victory on the inside. I'm, I'm not going to go into a battle if I don't have peace in my heart concerning what I have prayed about. I need to know that the Lord, you are with me, that you are sending me into this thing, and that you are going to undo, outdo, and overdo everything that the devil is trying to do in my life. The devil is alive. You got to know that there is power, 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 wonder-working power in the blood, and you got to be able to pray until things happen. You got to know how to use the power of the chair. I grew up in a time, even to this day, every morning when I'm in my study praying before God. I got a chair in my study. I, I don't sit merely in the chair. I kneel down. I came from Baptist roots where you just bow down, get on down to a chair. You got to get to, I mean, I, I know how to get down on the chair. And I begin to say my prayer like I'm old deacon. Now, I'm not saying the kind of stuff that, Lord, I thank you that my sheets last night were not my winding cloth and my bed one my cooling slab. I understand that kind of prayer too. But I pray out of my spirit. I begin to cry out to God and talk to Jesus about things that have been going on in the world and things that I see in the spirit realm. I begin to use the power of the chair. Sometimes you sit in the chair, the other time you kneel on the chair and let that chair become a place where I'm not here to do my thinking, I'm here to do my praying. And this becomes sort of like my anchor while I pray and I'm just using the power of the chair that's power just in the chair not for you to do any thinking but for you to do some praying and so you need to be able to know that before I can sit in the chair and teach I got to kneel on the chair and pray and because if I don't talk to the great teacher the Holy Spirit I don't have anything to say that's power and so I just tell you sometimes, have a seat, have a seat, have a seat. And whatever you need to do in your seat, the Holy Ghost will let you know. He really will. He really will. I, I'm glad about it. I'm glad about it. I just love him. I honor him. I celebrate him, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I, I just, I really do. Jesus had to take his folks and he had to teach them because when he was traveling with his family, there were some things about the, the spiritual things that Jesus was hungering for. And so he was lingering in the temple and they were assuming that Jesus was, was with him. And Jesus was back in the temple and they had to double back. They'd already gone a day's journey before they realized Jesus is not here. Where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? Here he is 
12 years old and he's in the temple sitting with those and the, the Bible says in, in Luke chapter 2 it says finally they discovered him in the temple sitting 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 among the religious teachers he was sitting listening to them and asking them questions sitting with them they were sitting and he was sitting with them asking them questions in this dialogue in this dialogos in this discussion he's sitting asking them questions notice in saint john chapter 8 and verse 2 notice and early in the morning he came again into the temple the speaking of jesus and all the people came unto him and he sat down and taught them notice he wasn't standing he sat down and taught them uh, you know the, the the sermon on the mount where jesus gave the he taught the beatitudes uh he did that on Mount of Olives while he was seated, not standing. He did that while he was seated. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, notice. And seeing the multitudes, he's got multitudes out there. He went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall... And he taught the Beatitudes. He taught them. It was a very long sermon. He was seated and they were seated and he taught them and they listened and they were able to ask questions because it was the custom of the great teachers to sit and teach, not stand. Later on, it, it came that professors and things started standing and teaching and so some of it began to shift and so it's, it's a... It's a stylistic, it's a methodology, so that's, that's not the, the, the sacredness of text. So it doesn't matter whether you, uh, the speaker is sitting or standing. It, it's not going to mean that it, it inhibits your ability to be able to communicate, whether you are sitting or standing. So uh, I, I do want you to understand that we don't want to marry ourselves and say because they did it this way that everybody has to do it that way no 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 we want everybody to get the truth and i don't care you know do you care whether your children learn some sense standing or sitting down <laughs> you know as long as they learn the truth as long as they get some sense and they can get it rolling on their side i mean you what you just want them to you just want them to learn is this child ever gonna get it if they have to get it upside down you just want them to get it i mean and let me talk to this child maybe it will sink in better if i make them stand on their head while i talk it's amazing and notice, notice what happened in Luke chapter 5 and verse 3 notice this then he got into one of the boats which was Simon's and asked him to put out a little from the land and he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat you see that Jesus was teaching and he was sitting as a rabbi teaching the people while he was sitting down so it is not always, though, in our nature to sit down or even to, to lay down. So sometimes the good shepherd has to make us sit down or lay down. And so I want you to notice in Psalm 23, verse 2 and 3, notice this. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Notice, this is the good shepherd. And, and I want you to notice how this passage is written not from the perspective of the shepherd, but it is written from the perspective of a sheep. 
Notice, this is a sheep saying, he makes me lie down in green pastures. Lay your hands on yourself, say, I'm a sheep. Look at the person next to you and say, you're a sheep. And it's, we, are, we are the sheep of his pasture. He is the good shepherd. Jesus Christ is the good shepherd. He's the good shepherd. We are his sheep. Now, here's the thing that I, I want you to realize. Sheep will generally not lie down unless four requirements are met. And so, remember we are seeing this passage through the eyes of a sheep. Here's number one, they refuse to lie down until they are free from all fear. When if a sheep is afraid, he is not going to be lying down. He's going to get up and start walking. I mean, so, so he can run if necessary. You know, you see people in the scary movie and you hear this creepy count. You can tell by the mu music that something weird is about to happen. And a girl is going to go over there and she's going to open up the, the door in the, to the closet or she's going down into the cellar and it's already dark down there. And you can tell as she goes down and the, 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 the music has already got you freaked out. And she's just still steadily just walking. Now you know this is not a person of color. Because <laughs> we don't fool with that kind of stuff. We, we will take off in a, in a heartbeat. I mean, if it's, it's like we be standing outside trying to call a popo. We'd be down the street. We, we... And so sheep are that way. That a sheep refuses to lie down un until they are free of fear. They've got, they can't be in fear of their life. They will not lie down. They have to be. And so when we as the sheep of God are trusting in God as the good shepherd, and it is the responsibility of the shepherd to protect the sheep. Sheep have no defense mechanism. They don't have any sharp claws. They don't have any fangs. They don't have any sharp teeth. They, they don't have any venom in them. They don't have a defense mechanism. They depend on the shepherd to protect them. That's why the shepherd has a staff to fight off wolves and other uh, animals. It, you know, the staff, the curved staff, it, uh, it, it, is, it has a, a hook on one end to be able to rescue them if they fall into a ditch. But on the other end, it is pointed to fight off wolves and bears and lions and things that would try to come and, and devour the sheep. But it is the responsibility of the shepherd to protect the sheep. That's why the good shepherd makes the sheep lie down. But they have to be free from fear. Here's the second condition. They will not lie down unless they are free from uh, friction with others of their kind. You see, you know how in, in certain animal kingdoms they have a pecking order? And this one fights this one and now he's the kingpin of, of the group. Well, they have some of that that happens with sheep. And if they feel like they have to stand to defend their position, they will not lie down. Because they don't want anybody to take, walk over them and to try to take dominance over them. So they will not lie down as long as they are experiencing friction with someone uh, of their own kind. Here's the third thing. They will not lie down if they are tormented by flies or parasites. You see, again, sheep are defenseless against gnats and different things going up their nose. 
And so the good shepherd, the Bible says he anoints my head with oil. If this was a special ointment that they would put around the nose of the sheep to keep pest away from them. There's a reason for that. He wasn't just being spiritual. It wasn't just talking about, this was for a, a, a natural function of keeping the pest away. When you are trusting the good shepherd, there are human beings that are pests in your life. There are some folks that know how to get up under your skin. They are like mosquitoes and ticks and leeches. And they are on you. And, and you know, it's just hard because they're in your face again. And, and every time you pick up your, your phone, you got a text from them and you just, you just... I mean, you, you really want to fan because you really want to say, get out of my face, please. Don't, don't get in my, please. Don't, don't get in my face today. And when you are agitated and irritated by these pests, he anoints my head with oil. He anoints my head with oil. He, 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 he gives me a divine impartation right into my thinking so that I don't even worry about them. I mean, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the oil of the Spirit, makes you so slick that they can't make contact with you. That what they try to give you, it doesn't stick on you. It, they just keep slipping off, but they can't get up your nostrils and start irritating you. I mean, God, God has a way of, of dealing with cantankerous people that come into your world. Folk that's about to drive you crazy, you got to turn them over to Jesus and say, you know what, God? Thank you for anointing my head with oil, for anointing my head with oil. And here's the fourth, here's the fourth condition. They will not lie down as long as they feel uh, in need of finding food. They will not lie down as long as they feel in need of finding food. So that these, these four conditions must be met. They've got to be free from fear. They've got to be free from the f friction of others of their own kind. They've got to be free from um, the torment of, of flies and, and, uh, and, and parasites. And, and they will not lie down as, uh, as long as they feel the need of finding food. See, again, it's the responsibility of the good shepherd to lead them in green pastures. That's what they eat. He leads them into a place where he meets their needs. He leads them. As he leads us, it's our responsibility to follow the good shepherd. And let me just tell you, God has green pastures. He knows exactly where the green pastures are for you. He knows. He knows. You don't always get it out of the one ads in the paper. He knows where the green pastures are for your life. And you have to follow the shepherd. Follow the good shepherd. He will lead you into green pastures because you can't even lay down because you are stressed out about how am I going to eat? How am I going to make it? What's going to happen if, they sh if my industry shuts down? What's going to happen if I get shut, you know, replaced by a robot? You better realize there's a good shepherd. There is a good shepherd. He's looking out for you. He might open up a door for you. It might send you back to school. It might help you to get some other certification in another area. But God will be leading you into green pastures. You have to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Follow Him. He's equipping you. He protects them, but He leads them into places of provision. He anoints their head with oil to keep the pests from trying to irritate them out of, out, out, out of their minds. Uh, he is, is the one that 
allows us to be calm because he gives us the, the peace in knowing that even while you are lying down, I'm up watching. I never slumber nor sleep. That's the good shepherd. He meets all four of these conditions to get you free even from fighting other folks who are like you. It's a terrible thing when you got your own relatives having to fight relatives who ought to be believing in you and lifting your arms up. And it's a mess when you got to fight folks in your own race to try to do what is right. It's when folks that you're trying to help, folks in your own church, folks who are also supposed to be fellow Christians, they're supposed to be a sheep to the same good shepherd. And you got folks fighting over who can get to the, to the shepherd. And who gets to do what when? And they won't lie down. And Jesus is saying, have a seat. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. The still waters are a place of reflection. Uh, they, uh, the, the original text says waters of rest and relaxation. Waters of rest and relaxation he will always lead you God will always lead you to a place that relaxes you and you know what that is for some people it's mountains for other people it's water for other people it's beautiful sceneries flowers and you know gorgeous landscape I mean it's it, it may be a golf course for some other person it may be sitting out on a park and listening to birds. You know where that place is. For some other people, it might be in your bathtub with just bubbles everywhere. And you're just sitting there and you just. And that's the steel waters, maybe your own bathtub. And he has the ability of coming in your own bathtub and calming your spirit and restoring your soul restoring your soul restoring your soul let me remind you of this that real power emanates not from a seat but from a stance real power it emanates from a seat not a stance you know I, I mean I, I think about that oftentimes we need to think about just having a seat so that we can discuss things before just jumping to conclusions and jumping on our feet I mean every week as I prepare to come and share with you I don't prepare while I'm standing, I prepare while I am sitting, while I'm sitting. Because real power emanates from a seat, not a stance. Now the most preeminent power, the supreme power of all is God Almighty, who rules from a throne, the throne of God. Are you aware that a throne is a seat? It is a seat. A king rules from a throne. If you've got a power uh, in, in, in a position in government, if you, you have a seat in parliament, a seat in Congress, you run for a seat because power emanates from a seat and not a stance. The biggest deals that are ever made in the corporate world, they are made in a seat around a table, a corporate boardroom table. They're made from a seat. Power emanates from a seat. And we're always trying to take a stand. But power emanates from a seat. It emanates from a seat where a person can think and write things out and strategize and plan and discuss. Power emanates from a seat. 
from a seat. So that's why the rabbi sat. And that's why the students who were trying to be empowered sat. They sat at the feet of the teachers. They sat and they were listening and they were watching and they were learning and they were, they were understanding. But they realized that power emanates from a seat. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4 uh, through 7 notice. But God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And notice this. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Just notice that he's raised us up to sit together. See we will rule and reign with him but you rule and reign from a seat. Sit with him in heavenly places. And there's a huge difference between sitting on the stool of do nothing and then waiting patiently on the Lord in obedience. I do want you to realize that there are times that God will just tell you have a seat. Just have a seat. Just chill out. I'm in control. I'm God and I don't need help on the throne. I don't need help on the throne. Then notice Exodus chapter 4. I mean, chapter 14 verse 10 through 14. Notice this. As Pharaoh approached, the people of God looked up and they panicked when they saw the Egyptians overtaking them and they cried out to the Lord. You see, remember, sheep can't, they can't lie down when they're afraid. And these folks looked up and they realized that Pharaoh and his army were, were behind them and they were overtaking them. And notice what they said to Moses. Why don't you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Weren't there enough graves for us in Egypt? What have you done to us? Why did you make us leave Egypt? Didn't we tell you that this would happen while we were still in Egypt? We said, leave us alone. Let us be slaves to the Egyptian. It's better to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. But Moses told the people, don't be afraid. Just stand still and watch the Lord rescue you today. The Egyptians you see today you will never be seen again. The Lord himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. Just stay calm. Just stay calm. Just stay calm. I want you to just listen to the words of this wonderful song entitled, Stand Still and Let God Move. Stand still and let God move. Let's listen.
the tide is swiftly rising and you wonder where he's been friend there never was a moment that his arms were reaching out you can rest assured and be secure god is moving right now stand still and let god Now let me say this, that while there is a time to be seated, there is also a time to take a stand. And there are times that God will actually call you to take a stand. It's a time to be seated, but there's also a time to take a stand. In fact, if you sit too long, things begin to go south. Whatever sits too long goes bad. If you let fruit sit too long, it goes bad. If you let milk sit too long, it goes bad. If you let meat sit too long, it goes bad. If you let your mind sit too long, it goes bad. If, if you let your body sit for too long, it goes bad. You, you sit in your chairs for too long, your legs will go to sleep. Whatever you let sit, an automobile, you let it sit too long, it will, it'll go bad. We were designed after sitting to then move. So God will shift you and he'll give you discernment to know when it's time for you to change your position. You're not made to sit forever. There are times that you sit and you watch God move, let God move. You take a seat and you let God speak to you, but then God will move you in a total different direction. There are times that he will send you into a war and he'll say, pray first, get my direction, but then get up and go to war. He told them that in Nehemiah chapter 4, fight for your sons, fight for your daughters, you know, fight for your homes. He says, fight, get up and fight. You prayed, you've got my direction. Now I want you to go and fight. And I tell you, if you don't take a stand for something, you'll fall for anything. And listen, as Christians, 
We have a responsibility to rightly divide the word and not use our words to divide others. We really do. And I have so much respect for those CEOs who this past week took a stand and walked out because of the president's poor response to the attack in Charlottesville. And so the CEO of Merck and the CEO of Intel and the CEO of Under Armour got up and walked out and before he was further embarrassed, he disbanded the whole council. Their stand caused something to happen. There's a time to sit. They were sitting on the council, but then they took a stand. There is a time. There is a time. There is a time. And I, I just want you to know that there are times that you can be seated. We, we normally know from, I mean, from Colossians chapter 3 verse 1 that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. He's seated there. But then you'll find in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen, the apostle of the Lord, servant of God, was being stoned and he looked up toward heaven. And now for the first time, Jesus is no longer seated. Jesus is standing. He's standing, he's looking, he's there saying what's going on. He stood up to receive. He stood up because he saw injustice happening to Stephen. Stephen was an innocent man that was being stoned. Jesus stood up. And may I just tell you that when you see injustice and you can stay seated. Something is wrong with Jesus on the inside. Because I'm telling you if things go wrong, Jesus stands up. He stands up for righteousness stands up and I'm just going to tell you when you're fighting this battle it's so difficult Dr. Martin Luther King who was just over in Birmingham he was in Montgomery actually at the time and was having a hard time on the journey and he said that he was went in the room and looked at his wife's sleep and he went in the other room and looked at all four of his children's sleep because he was awakened at two o'clock that morning by a telephone call and that was an ugly voice on the other end that said and if you don't get out of town I'm gonna bomb you and I'll bomb your house and kill your wife and your children and he was discouraged and couldn't sleep after that. He made a cup of coffee and sat there at his breakfast table and bowed over that cup of coffee and said, God, I could get up and go back home to my parents 175 miles in Atlanta. He was so discouraged, ready to quit the journey because it was too much. For him to risk his family, safety, for a movement. He said, I can't do this. And Martin said, he heard a voice speaking, crying through the vista of time on the inside. Two something in the morning. Said, Martin, stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. 
somehow it gave him the intestinal fortitude to make a stance after the power was in their seat they brought attention to an issue by sit-ins because there's power in a seat but that was a time that sit-ins were no longer enough and they were called to take a stand and he had to stand for truth and righteousness and one of the things that really blesses me is the story and is told in second samuel chapter 9 it's a story shared about king david he was bosom buddies with jonathan and after jonathan had been killed david had gone on in his life and become king and now was ruling on the throne and and he says does saul have any descendants because i made a covenant with his son jonathan and they said we've heard that he has a son jonathan has a son crippled in both feet because when they were being attacked the nurse grabbed him up and was running she fell with him that resulted in the injury that caused him to be crippled until the day that he died his name was Mephibosheth and David sent a message to Mephibosheth saying from now on from now until the day you die I want you to dine at my table here he is a cripple couldn't walk at all and Jesus invites him to say come and dine at my table there's a great supper of the marriage of the lamb that's going to take place and we're going to be invited to come not because we are good but because he is good he's going to invite us and, and, and here's the great beauty that David invites him to have a permanent seat at his dining table so that he would never go hungry and he gave him land to take care of he and his family and his servants for the rest of the days of his life but he says you'll have a seat at my table you'll forever be able to sit here and the beauty of it is that if you walked in and ever saw David sitting at his table and crippled Mephibosheth sitting at the other end of his table if you looked at who was around the table, you never knew who was crippled and who was not. Because the grace of the table covers your crippleness. And even when we can't walk this thing and do what we said before God that we would do, He invites us, not because we have been good and walked a straight line, but he still invites us to say come and dine at my table and his table covers our crippleness and nobody can tell that anybody is at a different level because the table levels the playing field for everybody you don't know who has is in a wheelchair you can't tell who has legs or who has functioning legs and feet when they are sitting at the table it is a part of the power of the table and he's given us this thing and said come and dine he's saying have a seat I will prepare a table before you in the presence of your enemies even people that don't like you I won't stop them from being able to see me bless you 
right in their presence. I'm not going to bless you in the boot in the back of the corner in the dark. I'm going to bless you and prepare a table for, for you in the presence of your enemies. So that people that didn't believe in you and people that talked about you and people that said that you wouldn't amount to anything and people that said that you weren't worth their time and that worried you and that said you're going to wish that, that you had still been with me. He says, I'm going to bless you in such a way that it's going to be in the presence of your enemies. I'm going to prepare that table for you. And I'm going to allow you to come and I will cover your crippleness. And they never will know what you're able to do and what you're not able to do. Because my grace is sufficient for you. And on that table, I just believe that there's some bread. Because healing is the children's bread. And whatever it is that you're sick about. That God is just able to heal you. When you bring, when he brings you to the right table and there is fellowship and discussion and you can talk and you can sit with the master and you can sit with the king and realize that I'm a king's kid. That I'm a king's kid. He loves me. I'm the apple of his eye. I am the favorite of, of God. He loves me in spite of me. He loves me enough to still say, you're welcome at the table. And he says, I'm covering all of your lameness. I'm covering your inability to even be able to walk in and do everything that I've asked of you to do. But I invite you to the table because he made a covenant with our father. And because of that covenant with our father Abraham, because of that covenant, we are grafted into that family because of our faith. And we come in and he allows us a seat at a king's table. And he allows us to drink of that that brings forgiveness to us and that that brings healing to us. And he's simply saying to us, you don't have to fight your battles. Have a seat. Stand ye still and see the salvation of the Lord. For the Lord himself shall fight for you. Watch God. And he'll put a discerning in you to know when it is time for you to stand. To take a stand after you have had a seat. I pray that you got something out of the word of the Lord today. I really do. Our scriptural lesson today comes from the fourth chapter of the book of Romans. The apostle Paul writing to the church at Rome here. Verse 20, 17 through 21. Notice this from the New Living Translation. That is what the scriptures mean when God told him, I've made you a father of many nations. This happened because Abraham believed in God who brings the dead back to life and who creates new things out of nothing. Even when there was no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping, believing that he would become the father of many nations. For God had said to him, that's how many descendants you will have. And Abraham's faith did not weaken, even though at about a hundred years of age, he figured his body was as good as dead. And so was Sarah's womb. Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, his faith grew stronger. And in this, he brought glory to God. He was fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promises. And I'm talking today simply from the subject, 
de 